Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. It is uh, starting to become a very bright day here in the capital and joining me on the programme this afternoon is Carol Rothwell. Carol is founder partner and managing director of Rothwell Douglas Limited, a consultancy that effectively applies the principles of psychology to the highly turbulent world of business. Um, Carol, very warm welcome to you today and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure welcoming you onto the show. Um, normally at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the topic of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate we approach the subject matter from that angle. Because for leaders within all walks of life, the pandemic has proven to be such a significant challenge. But for the likes of yourselves, Carol, to what extent has all of this affected things? To be honest, Scott, from a business point of view, I um, had significantly more work as a result of COVID. Um, I, uh, my company, we support leaders um, in the NHS. Mm. So it has been a particularly difficult time for leaders and we have been involved in supporting individuals and teams as they wrestle with the challenges of COVID and running an NHS service and, and supporting their their own staff through the um, the anxiety that they are experiencing and the intensity of the work that they're doing. And what sort of techniques have you used in order to sort of support leaders who are in that position? Primarily, I've been doing coaching, obviously, um, with uh, lockdown and the restrictions. A lot of the coaching has taken place online which um, I've been amazed how easy it has been to adapt to to that method. So coaching has been the primary one, but I've also done some team development exercises. We've even run team workshops um, actually using online um, media. And, um, and some of the teams that I've been supporting, they're going through a lot of conflict within their own team and we've been able to resolve some of the difficulties that they've experienced working with each other in this intense and very anxious time period. And managing anxiety is incredibly important, isn't it? Because mental health and well-being are two very important things that have been amplified by the uh, the pandemic. And from a leadership point of view, it is important to not only look to safeguard that of the people that you work with, but also your own as well because it is very mentally taxing taking on such responsibility managing things at a time in crisis so self-care as well is something that's also incredibly important absolutely in fact a lot of the time right at the beginning of the um covid world (laughs) we're experiencing um we put a lot of emphasis on self-care and um i've actually even been in i i a yogi myself, I'm a yoga teacher as well as a psychologist. So we've actually been introducing some of those techniques to, you know, about breathing and um, making sure that you have rest 
and that you're exercising in order to optimise your ability to handle the pressures. And when sort of leaders have been deploying these strategies, um, have you found generally from feedback that it's increased productivity for them? Um, increased productivity, <laughs> such a good question. So certainly in terms of one of the teams I've been working with is um, an IT department supporting two hospitals. And it, right at the beginning of COVID, the demands on that department were phenomenal all at the same time when everyone was very anxious about their own particular health and well-being. And um, the that particular department was so incredibly focused. They gave the care to their people and made sure that they would keep checking in with them and, and clear about the priorities. But they were absolutely able to accomplish phenomenal change in a very short space of time. And my client, Mark Hutchinson, actually said, the amount of innovation and change that took place in those first six weeks in terms of um, making digital, um, facilitating healthcare through the digital media was about 20 years. Isn't that incredible? It is. It's absolutely incredible. And I think you're very right. We've seen um, innovation and adaptability on an unprecedented scale during the uh, the lockdown period. That's very, very right. And it is one of the positives that we can certainly take from this. And it's hugely inspiring stuff as well, the way that we've sort of risen to the occasion in that sense. Um, absolutely. And mentioning that word inspiration, um, it is very much a buzzword for leadership, isn't it? We think of leaders as being people who have to step up to the plate and be inspiring people. And being somebody who coaches leaders yourself, I'm sure many people, of course, look to you as a source of inspiration. But um, are there any people out there that may be sort of inspired and motivated you in helping mould you to become the person that you are today, do you feel? Yeah, there are three people, actually, that I can mention. Um, the first one is actually my late husband, who was a phenomenal leader. He had a huge brain, but his brain was always fueled by his heart and the higher purpose that he was dedicated to. And I think that's such an important quality of leadership to, yeah, you've got to be clever, but actually you've got to be driven by something bigger than yourself. And um, and you've got to have that sense of compassion and caring um, so that other people want to follow. I think that makes a big difference in terms of inspiring others, mm. the higher purpose, not being driven by ego and definitely connecting to people and what matters to them. Um, my father was a great inspiration to me as well. Um, and he personified, I think, compassionate leadership. And the third person was Sir David Dalton, who um, inspired really a revolution in quality and care um, in the health service. There are some very interesting names that you mentioned there because I think it really hammers home the point that some of the most influential leaders out there, if you will, can be sometimes the people that are closest to us than the people that have the biggest influence. Um, they can be people who are essentially family members, friends, colleagues, and they're not necessarily people who put themselves on a pedestal, are they? Because I think sometimes when we think of leadership in this country, we can be tempted to just think of 
essentially the glamorous side of leadership, people who are in politics, in the public eye, people who are sports personalities, for example. And that's not really the reality, is it? No, I, I think the ability to connect at a human level um, and inspire people matters wherever you are. Um, it's not all about being at the top of an organisation or being the most uh, influential person. It is about actually connecting and inspiring other people to be the best they can be. And just thinking about inspiring the next generation now, I imagine there are a lot of youngsters out there at the moment who are looking on at the economic situation and may well be tuning into this podcast, actually, who are maybe a bit downhearted by what the pandemic has done to their employment prospects in particular. So as a leader yourself, Carol, is there any message of encouragement that you would give to those young people to get them to really pick up their heads, look at the opportunities that will be there and then really start to embark on that road to success? My own daughter has actually, she started her career and within a few weeks of lockdown, she lost the the first opportunity. And I have to say, um, I, I think the, my message to her is the same to all young people in this time. Use it as an opportunity. Uh, there are many things that you can actually start doing now, even though the jobs are not necessarily there to get yourself prepared. Um Absolutely coming through difficult times is probably one of the greatest skills you can develop. The resilience, maintaining the optimism while being pragmatic and realistic about things. Looking within yourself to your strengths. What are you really good at? And how can you use those skills in different ways um, to get started on things, to, to use social media to connect with people? I really think optimism is a key skill for anyone Mm. um, in a leadership position. And I think it's a great opportunity for people to think outside the box and try different things. Um, But don't lose hope. Don't give up hope. We will return to some normality and work will flow again and careers will benefit from, I think, the learning that we all take away. We'll certainly take a lot of lessons from this pandemic um, as well. I think that's very much for certain. And just reflecting on your experience over the last few months, Sir Carol, um, is there anything that you would really say stands out as something that you've perhaps learnt in your role during this time? Uh, uh, Well, I'm at the end of my career and I am not the most IT literate person in the world. Um, And so I have embraced IT (laughs) um, (laughs) in a way that I never thought I'd be able to. So. I think that's fantastic that we can, you know, start to face things that maybe we've avoided in the past. For me, it has been really adapting quickly to the changing needs of people and finding a way to make things happen. doesn't matter how we do it. We just need to understand what people require to help them to survive and thrive. Even when it comes to leadership, it just goes to show, doesn't it, that every single day is a school day and there'll be plenty more to learn in the future, I'm certain. And um, yes, I would like certainly to talk about the uh, the future as well, Carol, just before we do wrap things up on the, the show today, because I am conscious that we are beginning to run short of time. Um, over the course of the uh, the next 12 months, um, we are going to have to keep learning, developing and improving. And it is going to be tough because we've got a tricky winter coming up. We do know that um, there's the variable in this uh, next few months as well as to whether a vaccine will be found and there'll be a breakthrough on that side of things. But if we could 
pretend in this uncertain landscape that we do have a crystal ball for a moment and can look ahead one year from now. Um, ideally, where would you like Rothwell Douglas to be by then? And what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved and some of the changes perhaps that you would have liked to have seen in the wider um, sort of context of society as well? I, I'm really keen to um, really focus Rothwell Douglas on continuing to support and develop leaders in key positions, but with a real focus on developing emotional intelligence, um, helping leaders to really connect uh, through compassion and through care, and helping leaders and senior teams and consultant teams to have that ability to, to speak their truth and to maintain resilience during difficult time periods, never losing hope, but not losing sight of reality as well. I think it's an incredibly inspiring mission that you're on there, Carol, to really invigorate this generation of leaders. And it's something that's certainly going to be needed over the course of the next few months, true robust leadership. And let us really hope that we do see that. And I think that as the picture does start to become clearer, it would actually be wonderful to catch up at some point and have you back on the show with us just to see how things are sort of really starting to take shape. Thank you. I'd thoroughly welcome that. And I've really enjoyed having you on the programme, Carol, today. Um, Thank you once again for taking the time to join us. And most importantly as well, until we do hopefully get to speak in the future, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. Thank you, Scott. And the same to you. I'd like to extend that to all of the listeners that are tuning into today's podcast as well. Please do continue to stay well and look after yourselves. And please do be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in keeping people safe during this time. Uh, it was a pleasure for me to welcome Carol Rothwell, founder, partner and managing director of Rothwell Douglas onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Now, during his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 professional goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But of course, he remains most well known for that famous treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany back at the old Wembley Stadium, 54 long years ago. It saw England win their first and to date only ever World Cup and it also made Sir Jeff the only man to this day to have netted a hat-trick in a FIFA World Cup final because since that fateful day in 1966 nobody has repeated the feat. Um, He will be looking back on that fateful day as well as some of the other highlights of his career and discussing some of the importance of robust leadership throughout his success as well as leaving a message of thanks for how wonderful NHS who've been doing all they can during this most troubling time. All of that will be coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? 
I don't want him to bury it. Um, I, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with, with this record, and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm, want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want, wanted to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking that the game is nearly finished. I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski, the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks, uh, of making it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about 
COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and, and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, 
or Premier League as it is today, it's it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life in my in my football life and i suppose for every sir alf ramsey and ron greenwood um, as well that you have worked with there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their um of course their peak but just of course just but just as much as you can learn from of course coaches that do get the best out of players you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well because that experience can ultimately mold you as a person can't it Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their their career completely understand exactly where you're coming from I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly Um, during your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February um, Sir Jeff I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood but I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time I read somewhere that during your teenage years you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that as the saying goes yeah that's absolutely true when in, in those uh, medieval days you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play 
you um, in our road in Greenway, that was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the st- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the. the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three. When I was probably about seven or eight, into this particular street uh, called Greenways, and he what he did with me I think was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. 
the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about. I, I kind of put it between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60, 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just setting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, 
bench is one of the world class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world class player in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world class players and Banksy was up there not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charlton's and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, that we was a great time for the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. 
So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, uh, the, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it. I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes. Maybe, maybe longer. Maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever. It sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career, and I think I, I went into business for twenty years. And I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my you know, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to 
they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.